on top of that, he was the MC at our wedding as well. But you know that if you have a voice like Andy Baker's, and as buttery as it sounds, that you would have him speak at your wedding as much as you could. And I've always, uh, and my wife especially, have always respected how much he uh, saved our wedding after our wedding cake toppled over because of the heat. Uh, it was made of buttercream. We didn't consider that. It was 95 to about 100 degrees, and it just melted, and it fell over. And Andy Baker did such an amazing job to take care of that and uh, brought it out in such a way. He even brought an almost biblical lesson to it. And uh, it's always been in the forefront of our minds, and not just that reason, but we love him to death. So I'm, I'm always grateful at the invitation to, to, to preach uh, here because it gives me another reason to see him. Um, our title of our Bible study this morning, it is the gift of life to the dead. I said this morning, this evening, it is the gift of life to the dead, grace. It is the gift of life to the dead. Now, people often, when discussing grace, will also couple that with mercy. And oftentimes, they will use them interchangeably, right? Grace and mercy, mercy and grace. But I, I tend to believe that there are vast differences between the two. Uh, mercy is compassion, right? It's God's uh, not giving us the punishments that we ultimately deserve. And grace, on the other hand, is the gift of salvation through Christ. Uh, it is the riches of God at the very expense of His only begotten Son. Also, like mercy, something we do not deserve. As much as I want to talk about both with the time that we have, I'm going to focus on the topic that I have been given. That's hard sometimes for us as preachers because we want to go the way that the Word of God takes us. And I kept being pulled towards wanting to talk about mercy and wanting to talk about grace coupled together. But I understand that at the foundation, at the very core of our summer series, it is what is amazing about grace. And therefore, I will focus my very best on grace and grace alone. Eternal salvation. And as I said, the riches of God at the expense of Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. Now grace is doing, uh, is God's loving desire. Grace is God's loving desire and action to save us regardless of our inability to earn eternal life by our good works. Now, that may be a little confusing. It may have been a lot of, uh, of words strung together, right? But ultimately, before we can tackle the verses that I have been given, which is Ephesians chapter 2, and if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 7. Before we can jump to Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 7 and, dis and discuss ultimately grace to the dead, I think we need to first understand our impossibilities in life in reference to our desire to live eternally with God, right? In other words, what God has to offer costs more than what we can afford to pay. What God has to offer, which is eternity in heaven with him, is more than we can pay, right? There is nothing in this world, there is no amount of earthly works that we can do to earn salvation. Now, I don't want to step on the toes 
of the preachers that still have to come and preach. But it's hard for me not to at least address Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Before we even go into 1 through 7, notice what it says in 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Not a result of works. Now the ill-informed and really the ignorant, right? What are they going to do? They're immediately going to want to quote James chapter um, 2 and verse 17. So faith also, right, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And they may even yell contradiction. You've got Paul talking to the people of Ephesus who ultimately says you cannot earn salvation through works. And you've got James who says you have to have works with your faith or your faith is dead. Now for those of us, right, who are students of God's word. And by students of God's word, I mean for those of us who do, as it says in Psalm 1, we meditate on the word. We meditate on the word day and night. We read it. We study it. We live it. We understand the context of each of those disciple writers' uh, inspired truth, right? What James is trying to say and what Paul is trying to say. We understand that there is no contradiction between the two. James is referring to those that believe in the idea that faith only will save you. That faith with just the very words of your mouth, I believe in God, is enough to inherit everlasting life. And James says, no, it's not just faith only. As a matter of fact, it's faith and action. But we should understand that very, from the very start, faith was always coupled with action. When you said you had faith in God, you were also willing to do what? You were willing to be obedient to his word. To not only tell him that you love him, but to show him that you love him. He even said that in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. He's ultimately saying, if you have faith in me, then you're going to do what I ask you to do. That's the works. And we add to that Matthew chapter 7, 21. For all of those people on the day of judgment who are going to look at God and say, but look at all of the good that we did. Look at all the earthly works that we did. Look at all the money that I gave to the poor and the needy. And God is going to look at them. And perhaps with a heavy heart. Matthew 7, 21, it is the one who does the will of my Father. Right? It is the one who does what God asks, not the one who does what he wants. That's going to be the one that inherits that everlasting life. So that's what James is saying. When he says faith without works is dead, that you have to have both faith and you have to have the willingness to work. So then what is Paul saying in Ephesians? When he says it is not a result of works, he's not talking about following God. He's talking about those earthly works that we oftentimes consume ourselves with. He's talking about those people, uh, which by the way, a great truth that has been missed by a lot of people in the world and a lot of religions in the world for that matter, who believe that so long as they do enough good, that they are going to find salvation. Almost as if their good outweighs their bad, then God is going to be happy. See, the grace of God, as we bring it back to our topic... The grace of God cannot be earned through good earthly works. That's what Paul is trying to tell them. And why is that? Because the grace of God, because eternal salvation, 
right, through Christ has already been offered to everybody. It has already been offered to everybody. When Christ died on the cross, grace was offered to the entirety of the world. The question is not, do you have God's grace? The question is, are you willing to accept God's grace through obedience, right? Through the will of God. Notice Titus 2, and you may hold your place in Ephesians, and I may take you to other books throughout our our study this evening, but notice Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and uh, uh, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Now I feel like I should for just a moment step to the side and say this one comment. I call them rabbit trails. My wife tells me you're getting off topic. That's okay. I'm allowed to do this because I'm up here preaching. Um, here's, Here's what I need to make sure you understand. I'm not saying that earthly works are bad. I'm not. I'm not saying that earthly works are wrong. As a matter of fact, they are a part of a Christian's daily walk, are they not? Because James would go on to say in chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows. To help in their affliction. To keep oneself unstained from the world. And so even James says, look, helping is a part. Helping the needy and helping the widows and helping the orphans. That's a part of a Christian's daily walk. But that, those things, though, are not going to get you eternal salvation. Those things are what you should be doing in the Revelation 2 and verse 10 part of after becoming a a part of the body of Christ, right? We go through that plan of salvation, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. And then people go, I'm good, stamp my ticket, I'm on my way to heaven. And then they sit there and they don't do anything else for the, the rest of their Christianity. And they fail to realize there's one more step. Live faithful, not live I believe in God with my mouth, but live actively doing what God has asked you to do. And a part of that is preaching, and a part of that is teaching, and a part of that is helping the widows, and a part of that is helping the orphans. A part of that is giving to the needy and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's all about Christianity. So I'm not saying that those earthly works are bad. I'm just saying they're not going to save you. If you think so long as I do more good than bad, then God's going to let me into heaven. No, he says you need to do what I have asked you to do when it comes to salvation. Accept my grace. Accept my grace through obedience to my word. So now let us consider Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Right? Grace, it is the gift of life to the dead. Follow along with me as we read all seven verses. And then we will notice how Paul does the perfect job of splitting it up for us to make what we preachers like to call the perfect three-point sermon. Notice what he says here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and whereby nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So... So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Amen? I don't think Paul could have said it any better. Because ultimately he was just reiterating what God had inspired him to write, right? But what does he say? He does a beautiful job of splitting this up and he ultimately has three sections. Verses 1 through 3, what we once were. And then he goes on to say, four through six, what God did. And then in verse seven, he says, why God did it. And so that's ultimately how we're going to look at it. So let's take a look at the first three verses. What we once were, summed up in just three little words. We were once dead in sin. Dead in sin. That's what we once were. Now, if I were to ask you, to define sin. If you were to ask somebody else to define sin, what is the probability, and let me tell you it's very high, that somebody is going to say, well, sin is lawlessness. 1 John chapter 3, or 1 John chapter 4, and, uh, sorry, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. There's a very good chance, there's a very high probability that someone is going to say, well, define sin, well, sin is lawlessness. So when we sin, we are practicing lawlessness. While this is a completely accurate definition of sin, I, we can't neglect the first part of the verse. The true definition of being dead in sin. Notice what the whole verse says. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. See, faithful Christians are not perfect. I'm not perfect. Andy Baker, not perfect, right? Our, our husbands, our wives, our children, we as Christians are not perfect beings. We are imperfect beings. We give in to the sins of the world, but I have never been a fan of calling a Christian who falls short a sinner. I've never been a fan of that. A true sinner is one who willfully chooses to go against God who chooses to walk in darkness, who denies the light, who denies God's grace, who accepts their eternal damnation, who worships the God of self as opposed to worshiping the God of the Bible. They are the ones that have chosen who their master will be. And they have chosen it's going to be themselves, not God. And so they turn their back on God and every single day they are in that state of death. Spiritual death. See, Christians who fall short are not the same as those who walk in darkness. That is the heart of the message in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. That's what the writer was trying to get those people to understand. You're not going to be perfect, but as long as you are walking in the light, then the blood of Christ will still cleanse you. 
Notice what it says beginning in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. Those are people who try to put one foot in each door, right? One foot in each world. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say, verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, I may not be a fan of calling a Christian a sinner, but I do understand that Christians sin. But see, the beauty of it all, right? The beauty of being a part of the kingdom of God, the beauty of following the plan of salvation, becoming a part of the body of Christ, is so long as we are walking in the light that we are willfully trying to do what God has asked us to do, those moments in which we do fall short, those speed bumps that we don't go over or we go around, those times when we give in to temptation, we recognize that we can seek forgiveness from God. We can repent, seek forgiveness, and walk back on that path of light. I mean, look at what it says just a few chapters later. 1 John 3 and verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either, either seen him or known him. How do we answer that? If we tell people, well, you're not going to be perfect, you're going to sin. And then we look at 1 John chapter 3 and it says, well, if you're sinning, then you don't know God. Notice what he says. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. That's dead in sin. That's not choosing a life uh, with the Lord, but that's choosing a life with yourself away from the Lord. That's what it means to be dead in sin. And for Paul's audience, before they found God through Christ, that is what they were. That's what he says. That's what he says in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul would give us examples of why they were dead in sin in verses 2 and 3. They were influenced by Satan and they were controlled by lust. I mean, verse 2 is pretty straightforward, is it not? Following the course of this world. That's what made you dead in sin. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's what made you dead in sin. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is the reason why you were dead in sin. Because you weren't following God. You were following Satan. You were following the, the ways of this world. You were following the lusts of the flesh. You were following the prides of life. You should have been following God. But you were following your own desires. And because you were doing that, you were dead in sin. See, here's what we need to know about Satan. Satan has no dominion in heaven. His kingdom is of this world. Christ, in the midst of the Last Supper, in John 14, 30, he alluded to this. 
He said in John 14, 30, I will no longer walk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. And notice what he says right after that and leading into verse 31. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. That's the difference between Christ and every single one of us. Is the fact that Satan did everything he could to try to turn Christ away from being the perfect lamb and the perfect sacrifice. He put everything in his way. He tried every way to actually kill him before he got to the cross. He did everything he could to try to break him down. And the difference is is that Christ did not give in once. He has no claim on me. The question is, does he have claim on you? Does he have claim on us? Satan exhausted every resource in vain efforts to end Christ. And that's why when Christ, fulfilling God's desire, was willing to die of his own accord, Satan went about and said, fine, then I will make his death the most shameful, repugnant, and humiliating thing possible. Crucifixion. Perhaps Satan hoped that Christ might have aborted the mission of redemption by refusing to die in such a way. And if you don't believe that thought, the fact is the temptation was there and Christ knew it. You remember when the guards and the officials came to take Christ away? And what did his disciple do but take the sword and cut off the ear? And do you remember what Christ said right after that moment? In Matthew 26, 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? I mean, what is He ultimately saying? If I wanted to stop this, I could stop it. If I didn't want to die this way, all I'd have to say is, God, I don't want to die this way. And he would have ended it all. But with that, a failed redemptive plan. And we sing the song, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. But he died alone. Why? Notice what else he says in 2653 of Matthew. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it might be so? I could have very easily, right? I could have very easily have taken myself from this position with the very power that I have been given, selfishly said, I am not going to die this way. I'm not going to be humiliated and spat upon and beat to an inch of my life and then have to walk myself up a hill while people are humiliating me, yelling crucify, crucify, and then have nails driven into my hands and into my feet and then choke on my own blood until I give up my last breath. I could just simply say no, but that is not what God has in store for me. Because from the garden, he knew that I was going to have to die. And when I came down to this earth, I knew I was going to have to die. And I'm willing to do that. So Satan's only hope then is what? Because his strategy on Christ failed. 
The price of human redemption would be paid by the Savior. Grace would be given to the world. So Satan's only hope was to work on the heart of the people. I've lost when it comes to Christ. And you think that Satan would have learned by now. Because he tried right after his baptism, did he not? As a matter of fact, it says that Satan is cunning, right? Like a roaring lion, he waits, seeking in whom he's going to devour. And he did that with Christ. As soon as Christ came up out of the water, it says he was whisked away. And for 40 days he fasted. And for 40 days, I think Satan sat there and waited and waited and waited for that right opportunity. And what was the first thing that he offered him? Food. Satan is not dumb. He knows what your struggle is. He knows what my struggle is. He knows where you're going to stumble. He knows where I'm going to stumble. And those are the things that he puts in front of us, either through his own devices or through the devices of his dominions in this world. And he knows that if he can just get us to fall, then maybe perhaps he still has a chance to win. He has a hope, but we all know that you're not going to win when you go against God. You're not. But Satan isn't going to stop trying. And so he goes for the heart of the people. See, God's grace is sufficient for eternal salvation. It has been offered at the cross, but Satan will do whatever he can to stop us from accepting it. It's almost as if God has placed a present in front of us and Satan says, I'll give you two. It's like, oh man. You ever, you remember that old game, uh, Let's Make a Deal? Oh man, I used to, my my mother uh, raised me uh, more than my father did. And my mother and my grandmother were suckers for Price is Right, Let's Make a Deal. Anything where there was loud beeping noises, right? Press your luck, wheel of fortune. I went through all of the different transitions of Anna White. Okay, let's make a deal was the one that bothered me the most. Because the host would go up and say, I have in my hand $3,000. And you can take it. Or you can, you can get what's behind that curtain. And you always could see the little twinkle in the eyes. The thought going, Ooh, what could that be? And people would get greedy. Oh, what if it's a car? It's never a car. Right? It's, it's, it's like a farm animal. It's a, right? it's, it's a box of dirt. It's, it's never what you think it is. And so they sit there and go, ah, I'm going to take what's behind the curtain. And then you hear that awful, wah, wah. And it's like, oh. And you sit there going, they showed you value right in front of your face. And yet you chose something else? See, when I think about people who deny God and they accept the world instead, I think of people who are playing let's make a deal. God says, look, I have laid out for you everything. You can see there is no hidden fees. There is no question. There is no nothing. It is do my will and inherit everlasting life in heaven. Well, what's heaven like? Well, I can tell you to the best of my knowledge and to the best of my ability what heaven's going to be like by painting this picture with gems and jewels and, uh, uh, and, and high precious stones that you have in this world, but that's only because your minds are 
finite when it comes to truly understanding what it's going to be like. And so he says there's streets of gold and gates of pearl and, and jaspers. And there's no tears though, right, in heaven. There's only happiness and joy and peace and comfort. And so he lays all this out for us. And then Satan is on the other side going, or you can take what's behind the curtain. And for those of us that are, that are true Christians, we look at our friends and our family and we say, don't do it. Don't do it, right? Don't take what's behind the curtain because it's not going to be everlasting life. Because when that curtain gets pulled back, what are they going to see but fire and brimstone and death? But that's what Satan does. If I can't end Christ, then I will end his people. Insert the problem of lust. The problem of many in Ephesus, of those that were once dead in sin. Verse 3 says, Among uh, whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. They let the world move them instead of the word. You know, in the very last of that, he calls them children of wrath. Because ultimately, that's what they are going to feel on the day of judgment, is the wrath of God. And as much as I want to, I've wasted too much time already in point one. As much as I want to uh, talk about the wrath of God, allow me to say at least this much. I don't blame God for getting angry at those that are living in sin or walking in darkness. God's only begotten son died in such a horrific way that we might have all things that are necessary for salvation. And a lot of people's response is selfish desire, ignorance, and an unwillingness to obey. God said, I gave you my only begotten son. And all I'm asking for you is just listen to my word, my life, spiritual life saving word. And you refuse to do that. And you wonder why I call you children of wrath. Because that's what you deserve. You deserve the anger of the Lord. And it's not just because they were Gentiles either, right? Even as the rest. When he says even as the rest at the end of verse 3, he says it's not just going to be you. There are going to be Jews who also feel the wrath of God because they're holding on to the old law and not switching over to the new. But let's go on to verses 4 through 6. Because we've looked at what we once were dead in sin, but now let's look at what God did. Reread verses 4 through 6 with me. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, he loved us, verse 4, he liberated us, verse 5. He lifted us, verse 6. And that's what Paul says. This is what God did. He loved you. That's mercy. Guess what? I get to talk about mercy. I knew I'd figure out a way to fit it into my sermon. I love mercy. We can't ignore the mention of mercy. It's compassion. The motives which led God to make us alive were mercy, love, and grace. He didn't just make us alive, but it says he made us rich. 
It recalls the generosity and the lavishness of what God was offering. We as a sinful people do not deserve anything but eternal death. And God, because he is a merciful God, treats us otherwise. The core of that is love. Unselfish, agape love. The type of love that pulls you to deliberately do what is best spiritually for another human being. You are just willfully pulled like the good Samaritan to help somebody else because you care for their salvation. That's agape love. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. See, what God sacrificed for us is ultimately worthy of our love or sacrifice in return. And then when we look at Matthew twenty two thirty six and following along with that, we see, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We may not get along with our neighbors, right? But we're told to love them. We are told to sacrifice for their spiritual salvation. That's agape. That's agape love. Christ said in John 13, 34, and I've always, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, uh, me and uh, uh, our new, I'm going to call him new, he started in January, but uh, it still feels fresh and new, but our new youth minister, we're talking about this this afternoon, and John 13, 34 says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Have you ever asked what makes that commandment new? Because ultimately, he, he, he said those exact same things in the old law, right? He said uh, in the old law, Leviticus 19, 17 through 19, that we were to do what? That we were to love, right? That we were to, to, uh, to love uh, one another, So what is it that makes the commandment new? Christ. It's the sacrifice of Christ that makes it new. I want you to love, right? See, the old law might have told you to love, but it didn't take you far enough. I mean, that's ultimately the argument that Christ has with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 6 when he calls them hypocrites not once but twice because he said you're praying but you're not praying the right way. You're following the law but you're not following all of it. You're not going far enough. You say that adultery is sin and Christ says I say that lust is because you're not going deep enough. You're not going far enough. And so when it comes to love he says sure You're supposed to love your neighbor, but you're supposed to love him the way that I loved you. And what did Christ do for us but gave himself up on the cross? We don't deserve grace, do we? But he gave it to us because he loves us. In 1 Timothy 2.4, he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the reason why he gave us his grace. Because here is the true nature of our condition. As children, we don't know sin. We don't know darkness. 
We don't know what it means to be separated from God. It's the reason why Christ would say with confidence in Matthew 19, 4, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. They're innocent. They don't know darkness. They don't need the plan of salvation because they don't know what it means to seek redemption of sins. However, when we reach that age of accountability, which is different for all children, but when we reach that moment when we truly understand that we're doing wrong, that we're living in sin, that we are dead in sin, that we're separated from God, and that we need to be redeemed, this is where God's grace comes in. Because of his love, he is liberating us, he is freeing us from the state of sin, or as Paul says it, he made us alive together with Christ. And this is where some people will assume that confessing faith with one's mouth is what saves us, but we know that that's not the case, right? Because we've already talked about that. It's not enough to say, well, I believe in the Lord. John 3.16 tells me, preacher, uh, you know, right? For God so loved the world that he gave us an only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life you can't tell me that baptism is there and it's not there it's previous in the verses before it when Nicodemus came and said what must I do to be saved and he said be born of the water and the spirit Christ shouldn't have to say and God shouldn't have to say it twice be baptized that's what he told Nicodemus and then later on he summed it up with John 3 and verse 16 and so we know that it's more than just confessing with one's mouth See, Paul doesn't mention baptism in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. But the fact of the matter is, he was already talking to people who had been saved. But he does parallel his words in Ephesians 2 and 1, verse 7, with what he wrote to the people of Colossians, or Colossae, in Colossians 2, 12 and 13. Listen to the similarity. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. He says the exact same things to the people of Ephesus. He leaves out baptism. Why? Because they've already been saved. He doesn't need to talk about baptism. He needs to talk about how to keep them faithful. How to keep them going. That's the living uh, uh, faithful in the face of death. And then we get into our final point, And it goes right into our conclusion. And I'm going to do my best to get it done in three minutes. The why. Why did God do it? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, he did it so that he might display us as trophies of his grace. You know, when a child runs a race, when a child competes in a competition and they win, they're given a trophy. I did Taekwondo when I was younger, and somewhere, I can't tell you where they're at, but somewhere I've got medals and trophies from years of doing it. And when I looked at them as a child, they reminded me of the hard work that I put in to accomplish that. It's the reason why, and you may hate me if you have children, it's the reason why I don't like participation trophies. Because what are we teaching them? You don't have to try hard, you'll still go home with the trophy. That's not what God teaches, is it? No, as a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize? So run in a way that you are going to be the one to obtain it. Because on the day of judgment, he's not going to be, okay, everybody tried, everybody come on in, get into heaven. No, he's going to say, the ones that did the will of my father, the ones that ran down uh, uh, the, the lighted path, those are going to be the ones that get it. God gave his grace, he gave his love, he gave his mercy, he gave his hope for salvation that, so that those who accept it might be evidence of its effectiveness. God wants to put us 
as trophies and say, look it, it works. He wants to use us as examples and say, look, it works. But see, Christ had already said that in the Sermon on the Mount, did he not? Be salt that seasons, be light that shines so that they can see the glory of God through you. We're supposed to be trophies for God, but not trophies on a mantle that are getting dusty, but trophies that are showed to people so that they can see that being a Christian is worth it. We are supposed to show people that being a Christian is worth it. A few final thoughts, and then the lesson is yours. Even though Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, I think we can assume that he's writing to us as well. Because the truth is, for those of us who are Christians, and I'm not offering an invitation, although it's going to sound like it, you're more than welcome to come forward and say, I need to make a change. Guess what? You don't have to wait until someone says, and here's the invitation. You can do it day or night. I can almost guarantee you Andy Baker will answer. And if he doesn't, I'll give you my cell phone. You can call me, and I'll make sure he answers. (laughs) Because the truth is, for those of us who are Christians, there was a time in which we were dead in sin. The good news is we saw God's love, are thankful for his mercy, we accepted his grace, so we put on Christ through baptism. But we should never forget where we came from and what we left behind because we don't want to lose that salvation. The world is not worth losing salvation. To those who are not Christians, you are still dead in sin. You may love God and you may do an abundant amount of earthly works, but on the day of judgment, he's going to ask, did you do the will of God? And what is God's will? I gave my son, now I want you to give yourself. Hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. I've given you my grace, now accept it, so that you are no longer dead in sin, but now you are alive in Christ. I thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you this evening. I hope that this is not the last time, but if it is, Lord willing, every single one of us will have accepted the grace of God and thus see each other in heaven. God bless you.